Hey everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, and we're back for another episode. Christina is with us this week. Hey, Christina. Hi, Tina, and hello, listeners. It's great to be back again. After much trial and error, Tina and I may just have finally solved all of our technical difficulties. Well, we said that the last time we started recording, and then we had to delete it and start over again, so I'm not not even going to say that. So... As far as our In the News article, I found this really interesting article. Elizabeth Warren released her student loan debt relief plan yesterday. $50,000 of student debt forgiveness for federal and private student loans. Then borrowers with household income below $100,000 would receive that $50,000 in tax-free forgiveness. But if you make more than $100,000... You're, you'd have a forgiveness credit of like a dollar for each three dollars of income above a hundred thousand or something. I don't, basically, you get less forgiveness if you make over a hundred thousand dollars a year, <laughs> and if you make two hundred fifty thousand dollars, sorry, but you make too much money, and you know. But um, wow, so that's kind of her thing, yeah. And she also wants to have free college. Wow, this is an incredible proposal right here. I mean, Senator Warren, you might just win me over. Where is she from? Massachusetts. Yes, so she's a Democrat from Massachusetts, and she also is a 2020 presidential candidate. So this is quite an interesting proposal. And I mean, as someone who has student loan debt, (laughs) I mean, of course, this sounds amazing. I feel like this is going to be people who who know nothing about politics, who don't care about politics, and literally have no idea the difference between Democrat, Republican, Independent, all that stuff are going to be like flooding to the polls in 2020. <laughs> like, I just want my $50,000 for I mean, it's like, it's just well, kind of a big deal. And yet, if you, re- you know, it's, it's I've kind of, you know, reading the other side of it. I don't know where I fall. Honestly, it's just so it's tempting to just immediately go, I want my $50,000 forgiven. And that's it. I don't care about anything else. But then there's another right. side of it. You're like, how do we pay for it? How, right. How is this ever going to work? Exactly. And listeners, if you want to find this article that we're discussing right now, it's actually um, published by Forbes. But it's the article is saying that um, there are 44 million Americans who collectively owe $1.5 trillion in student loan yeah. debt. That is just an incredible number. But I, from what I can understand, Senator Warren, she is she's saying that, well, it's predicted that by 2023, 40% of these student loan borrowers may potentially default on their student loans. So I think Senator Warren's argument is that if we can forgive this student loan, or at least forgive a substantial amount of the loan, that actually makes it more reasonable to pay back in a shorter amount of time than Americans who are currently working to pay off student loan debt, that money will actually go back into the economy, I think is is her argument. I mean, they'll be able to pay off their homes or they'll be able to, I guess, spend more money <laughs> on things that we want. <laughs> but hopefully we would be good stewards of what we've been forgiven and put it into savings and stock, etc. Um, so I think that's her argument. Yeah, I think that what she's thinking is like, if you are currently, if you currently have a student loan debt of say $40,000 or $50,000 or whatever it is, and then you, your payment monthly on that is $600, $700 a month for 10 years. And then all of a sudden that goes away and you're not having to pay that payment every month, you know, that you're used to paying. Well, most people are going to either, you know, save that money or go out and buy, like probably go buy a car or something because it's like a car payment for some people. Right. So I, th- I think that's what she's kind of thinking. It's going to stimulate the economy by by doing that. But yes. my thing is, I wonder, because it seems like the, and, and, and honestly, I'm coming, really coming from a place of ignorance here. I'm just going to be perfectly <laughs> no. honest. I, I haven't done an extensive research. You know, the end of the news article, we tend to just like find an article and just chat about right. it, um, <laughs> as opposed to like our other stories that we like really research in depth and pull together all the information. <laughs> so I don't know a whole lot of about this, but it seems like the government probably is, I would imagine, relying on those payments of the people who are paying back those loans. I mean, that money's going somewhere, right? Right. And that, I guess that is also the other question that 
people bring up is, I mean, you know, where is it going mm-hmm. along with our social security checks? Where are they? <laughs> I mean, that money's uh, going back into what the, oh boy, am I ever going to show my ignorance here? But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but do, do they not a lot of times sell those loans to private institutions? And I think that like the Fannie Mae institution, it, be, it became privatized at one point. I don't know. I just, it seems like how would that work if the if the loans got forgiven? Right. Then those institutions would pretty much sink, you know, and or unless the government paid it off. I don't know. Anyway, I if you guys are listening and you have two cents <laughs> to put in on this, that's about Please, a, that's about two cents. That's two cents more than I have apparently. <laughs> right. Um, it's, or me. That's very. <laughs> It's very confusing to me. It's like I, yes. I haven't exactly put in a whole lot of effort or time into understanding the whole issue. But I thought I would just like bring it up, you know, and just get the conversation going. Right. And actually, currently, I'm doing research about student loan forgiveness programs and, that are available to nurses nationally. The government does offer a student loan forgiveness program to nurses who work for nonprofit organizations. Yes. But it's over the course of 10 years. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, just as a little food for thought, maybe for some of you listeners who are wondering about the options that you might have. I myself am currently enrolled in this program, but again, it is over the course of 10 years. That is usually the amount of time that most people take to pay off their student loans. Yeah, for sure. So it's not really alleviating perhaps maybe my sense of urgency about the amount in loans that I currently owe. Mm-hmm. But it, that that is just another thought. How would this be different from other federal programs that are currently offered? Yeah. I don't know. So if you guys have an opinion about that, let us know. Um, Send us an email and explain it to us. (laughs) Please do. Be nice. (laughs) Be kind. My self-esteem can't handle it. I I can't handle people being too mean to me. (laughs) Oh, me either. And that is the point of Good Nurse, Bad Nurse to foster kindness among nurses and everyone in the healthcare community because we love everybody who chooses this profession. We think we're awesome. Yes. And because I can't handle it. So I'm literally trying to single handedly change everybody's head because tina can't handle it and christina <laughs> can't handle it <laughs> i'm way too sensitive oh we are we are, yes i can't tell you how many tears i have shed in the hospital yeah it I, I mean anyways well i guess we'll get into our bad nurse story this story i did not think about it when i found this this story i i was kind of looking through some different ones that i had kind of archived and came across this one and started looking at it and i was like oh yeah this this one was kind of interesting. And then my husband texted me this afternoon while I was kind of typing up my notes and pulling all the information together. And he said, how are you doing? I said, oh, I'm okay. I'm putting together my show notes for tonight. And I said, this is a really emotional story. And I, and when I said that, I was like, I thought to myself, why? Why am I so emotional about that? I mean, my goodness, some of the stories that we tell are really heavy. They're, right. they're devastating. They're horrible. And then I realized, so this story is about a man who died at a correctional um, institution and he was a type 1 diabetic. So I, my brother died in his early 30s of type 1 diabetes, of complications from type 1 diabetes, and he was a drug addict. And so I didn't even put that together. I never put it together until at some point when I was trying to explain to my husband why I was so emotionally involved in this and upset, really. And then I was just like, I think it's just because maybe I'm just somehow, you know, relating it to Terry. And then once I said that and texted him, I just started crying and I couldn't stop. I was so upset. I was just like, oh, dear, this has really been a trigger for me. It's really bizarre. You know, it's kind of weird. But I think it's been kind of cathartic too, just to sort of read this and and process through all of it. It, It's, um, it's very emotional for me. And so I'll just get started on it. So Wednesday morning, September 24th in 2014, a young man by the name of Joel Dixon, I believe he was about 28 years old. Wow. He was an inmate at the George County Regional Jail. He was found on the floor unresponsive in the shower. The events leading up to his death would eventually be revealed to shock his family, the whole community where this happened, and basically the world of nursing just because of the circumstances surrounding it. An autopsy revealed that he had no evidence of drugs in his system. He did suffer from substance use disorder, and um, he told jail officials when he was first booked into the jail that he had taken up to two grams of meth every day for the the past six months leading up to his arrest. So he was definitely a drug addict, for sure. We refer to them as drug addicts. It's not really the appropriate terminology. Right. But it's, you know, commonly referred to. I try to use the appropriate terminology, which is substance use disorder. 
disorder, you know, someone suffering from substance use disorder. But when I do that, sometimes I feel like people are like, I don't know. where. It's almost like you're sugarcoating it a little too much and they don't understand where you're going with that. And it's like, well, what's commonly known as a drug addict. Yes. But I think back by saying that someone is a drug addict, it's sort of dehumanizing them and making them, you know, not a real person that somehow making it they're less of a person, I guess. Yes. It's more respectful to say, you know, someone suffering from substance use disorder. He died from complications due to diabetes and he was a type one diabetic. He had been arrested about a week earlier for possession of a controlled substance, a DUI and child endangerment because he was found passed out with his children in the car. Um, Yeah, I know. It's just when you hear this, it's kind of if you've seen those videos that kind of go around where the police are coming up on someone passed out in their car and there's kids in the back and they're like videoing them and then putting it on Facebook and basically shaming them, I guess, because they're I guess they're hoping that that's going to somehow make a difference or cause people to not do that, maybe not do drugs in the presence of their children. Have you seen that? I've never seen one, no. Well, I've seen that. And um, it's very shocking to see, you know, someone obviously passed out. They almost, Mm. you know, just completely unaware of reality. And then children in car seats with them. And the the police, you know, video it and put it on the internet or put it on social media. I, I believe they have good intentions in doing it. I I don't really like it personally. It's just a personal opinion. I have a lot of family members. Obviously, I already mentioned my brother who struggle with substance use disorder and or have in the past. And I don't know that it's really that helpful to to shame people that way. But they think I think that they believe they're doing the right thing when they do it. Mm, yeah. So according to testimony from jail employees um, and medical records, he had not received insulin for the entire time, I guess it was about nine days that he had been there, despite the fact that wow. he was, yeah, type one diabetic. So he had he was in a unit for inmates with medical issues, and he'd been there for about a day and a half. So he was not received onto this unit when he first came in, right? And I guess when he probably first came in, he wasn't necessarily you know having symptoms. I guess sure. And then at some point, he must have started manifesting you know some symptoms, and then. They put him in this medical unit where he was supposed to be, you know, I guess under monitoring and observation of a nurse. Right. And it's interesting that it's apparently that most of this report is from the guards. The guards Mm -hmm. are the ones who reported all of his his symptoms, Mm -hmm. which are kind of classic symptoms, slurred speech, Mm -hmm. quivering lips. And they said he was vomiting up a dark substance. Yeah. And then... He couldn't even hold down a sip of water without vomiting it back up. Yeah. Is what they what they reported, the guards reported. Yeah. And some of those symptoms are consistent with someone withdrawing from opiates. But but the vomiting up, especially of a dark substance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would certainly be. It should be concerning to any medical professional or really any person. I don't think you have to be a medical professional, clearly, because these guards were concerned. Right. The guards were concerned. And actually, even if you are, quote, I say this in quotes, just withdrawing, because it's actually very dangerous to withdraw. Yes, it is. Very, very dangerous process. Yes. And and can be life threatening. That's why there are in many facilities, there are protocols in place, there are medications that should be administered, people Mm -hmm. need to be monitored very closely when they're even when you suspect that they might be withdrawing from anything. For sure, for sure. And I mean, so it really shouldn't have mattered. But the guards said when they were reporting later after this death, that they had told the nurse who was on duty, Carmen Brannon was her name, she's a registered nurse. She was the only one at the jail, and she was solely responsible for all of the medical decisions. And they told her that Dixon did not look well. And did I say his name, Joel Dixon? Yes. And they said that he did not look well. And they told her that multiple times. And basically, the guards were saying that Brandon kept telling them, well, he's just faking it. Or she would say, oh, he's just withdrawing. Hmm. They said that she would, if any inmate had a history of drug use and there was something medically wrong with them, she would blame it on withdrawals. Wow. And just didn't want to deal with it. And that was what they claimed. I'm not saying that that was definitely true. Right, right. So they they also claimed that during the seven days he was in jail, his blood sugar was only checked one time. Wow. Yeah. That is that is very disturbing. It's, it's scary. That is. Yeah. Yes, that's very scary. Brandon said Dixon had not seen his doctor to treat his diabetes in more than a year. 
That and and you and I know that that's common among right among people who aren't necessarily don't necessarily have a stable life right that they even type 1 diabetics which absolutely is scary to think about but they many times aren't taking care of themselves they aren't going to the doctor they're not checking their blood sugar they're not getting insulin right and they do end up in the hospital right what I don't understand about that is that Carmen Brennan claimed that she didn't know that Dixon was a diabetic oh and that's why she assumed his symptoms were due to detoxing but then there were records that showed that at some point in time, because this was not his first arrest, he'd been in the he had been in jail before. So on a previous arrest, she had signed some document where he was basically refusing insulin, and he had to sign that he understood that he was refusing medical care for it. And so she signed that document. And so what the oh I see yeah. So it's like, well, did she know because she had signed that? What she said is she doesn't remember that she has a lot of. There are a lot of inmates that come through the jail, and there's no way she could remember all of the medical conditions about all of them. And she didn't remember that about him, that he was a type 1 diabetic at this time on this arrest. And also the jail officials, someone at the jail said that that document that he signed the previous arrest would not be in place for this arrest. Like they would have to sign that each time. It's not like it just forever he you know, understands that he's refusing his insulin. Right. Well, and okay, not to play the devil's advocate. Yeah. Oh, but I do understand that. I mean, it is hard to keep track of your patient's previous medical history. Um, If you have multiple patients and then, you know, someone asks you a question, you might say, oh, wait, hold on, let me double check because (laughs) I can't remember if that's this patient or that patient who had that problem. So that, I mean, that is understandable. I think it's understandable as well. I think that's very common and all the nurses listening are probably going to be like, yeah, I mean, how many times have you had two 65-year-old men, COPD exacerbation, congestive heart failure exacerbation, or whatever, and they just sound so similar that you get them confused. Right. I have to sometimes, I'll write down very specific details of each one just so I can differentiate between the two and not get them mixed up because it's easy to do. So I I, kind of, yeah, I'm like you. I don't want to just completely discount her statement that she didn't remember that about him because, you know, that was before and this time he didn't say anything about being a type 1 diabetic. Right. And oh, goodness. I mean, that also kind of opens up a whole a whole nother discussion about, you know, record keeping and Mm -hmm. maybe he wasn't able to provide that information himself at the time of his arrest if he was incapacitated. I mean, surely there has to be a way to help these institutions keep a record of some sort on these patients. I mean, the district attorney said that the Brandon nurse, the nurse, mm-hmm. she did not provide adequate medical attention during the nine days that Mr. Dixon was in jail. And she didn't document any treatment she provided, um, nor did she take his vitals the way she should have. Mm. But, you know, we also say, well, we, I mean, every nurse knows if you didn't document it, it didn't happen. But if she didn't provide any treatment, then there would not have been any documentation for it yeah. to begin with. And even if she thought that he was suffering from some type of withdrawal from a drug or from different drugs, I would think that if you thought that was the case, you would be more vigilant about getting vital signs. Exactly. Yes. At the very least. Making sure you keep an eye on him. Uh, I mean, it, that, as we already said, is a very dangerous process if it goes unmonitored. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Prosecutor said that the, some of the jailers said that the day before he died, he was so weak and his speech was so slurred that they couldn't understand what he was saying. They were able to make out make out at one point the words help me. And they said when they told Brandon, she needed to check on him. She glanced, she just like glanced in the window of his cell for just a second and then said, I don't have time for him. Wow. And they actually have the video surveillance that shows her just glancing into the window for a second and then walking off. Oh, yeah. And then, oh, that's, oh, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, and, and someone else reported that at one point they had asked her to go check on him again. I mean, it sounds like they were very, very concerned about him. Yes. And she made some sort of statement such as, I'm sick of hearing about Dixon. Yeah. It's like multiple people get, can you go check on him? Can you go check on him? Hey, I just, I just saw him and he doesn't look good. You know, she keeps hearing this. And finally, she, at some point, she's just like, I'm just so sick of hearing about this. You know, she's like, he's withdrawing. And that, that should put alarm bells in your head, especially if you've not administered anything. I can understand perhaps if you had 
administer, just administered a medication or something of that nature. And you say, okay, well, give it 15 minutes or 20 minutes or however long for it to start to work. Yeah. You know, it's going to take a while. But if you've not done anything at all and people are constantly coming up to you, goodness, I... I would be worried. Have you ever worked with um, medical professionals, um, maybe another nurse, maybe a doctor, maybe a respiratory therapist, so- someone who basically just wants to blow off everything and act like nothing is an emergency and nothing is important and they <laughs> almost treat you like mm-hmm. you're such an idiot if you are you know, concerned about something because it's like they want to play cool about everything. Right. <laughs> so she... I mean, I'm not saying that's how she was, but it sort of sounds like that's, I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, right. It sort of sounds like that, but I'm not being there. Um, But I have worked with people like that who are just like, and especially if it's a not, if they're non-medical, she's the only medical person there, you know, she's just like, you don't understand, you don't know what's going on, it's fine. And that's kind of how, you know, she was. I mean, maybe she thought he was fine, you know? Maybe she did, yeah. And the the jailers were just probably like, I can't believe she's not not doing something. But, you know, sometimes are there patients at the hospital that family members are like, why aren't you doing something? And they're like really worried and concerned. And you know that you're doing everything that you possibly can and that providers are aware of what's going on. Things are being done. You can't necessarily explain everything to somebody who's not medical. And so all you can say is, look, I, it's we're doing everything that we can, but that that's never going to be good enough for somebody who's not medical. They just don't understand. And it, to right. them, it looks like you're not doing anything, you know? Right. So that whole dynamic. That is true. Probably happened a lot at the jail, I would imagine. Right. And honestly, one of the... One of the main functions of nursing care is to monitor. I mean, that's what that's what we do. Sometimes when when patient family members say things, you know, like, like why aren't you doing something? I say, well, we are. Yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, right now, all we can do is watch and wait. Yeah. And that is, uh, you know, we're doing everything that we can medically, but sometimes you just monitor and you watch and you wait. But if Brandon was the only nurse for the jail, I can understand how she would be stretched beyond belief. I mean, I I guess I don't know how big the jail was, but surely it was more than six or 10 (laughs) inmates, I would imagine, that she's supposed to be providing medical care for. That would be a very stressful job, I would imagine. Yeah. And her attorney basically said that it was the guard's fault because they were supposed to be monitoring the inmates and then reporting to her. But I I don't really understand that because it sounds like that's what they were trying to do. Right. He said that they could have called 911. But didn't. But according, huh. yeah, according to the district attorneys, though, it was policy at the jail that it was Brandon's responsibility to monitor the patients, give him, give them whatever medication they need, and then get help. So I think really she was the only one that could decide to call nine one one or sure, you know, intervene like that. Wow. So they did charge her with misdemeanor manslaughter, and corrections officers and an LPN who worked with her worked under her she was this LPN's boss testified that Brannon had withheld medication from inmates in the past so basically what they were saying is this was not something new for her Mm. being said that he would attempt to make appointments for inmates that he felt needed to be seen you know for like a higher level of medical care and then she, she would cancel the appointment saying that those inmates don't need, you know, free medical care or that that would put them over budget. Or I think it was the warden that said something about it putting them over budget because he tried to go to the warden and the warden was like, you know, they're not getting free medical care. That's going to put us over budget. You know, they weren't getting. And I think her her take on it and one of the articles said that she was kind of had the attitude of like these people aren't getting medical care outside of the jail. Why are we having to now that they're in jail, all of a sudden give them all this wonderful health care and taking care of them. They weren't, Hmm. you know, that was her, her attitude, um, according to, I guess, the other people that were working around her, other officers and that sort of thing. The LPN that she worked with said that he even got the new, there was a new warden. So there was one warden who was the one that said, you know, we're not giving free medical care. It's going to put us over budget. Then they had a new one and the LPN went to him and, and he was trying to explain, you know, if I feel like someone is medically unstable or needs a higher level of care, I would like the authority to be able to seek attention for them and make appointments. And that warden said, yeah, that's fine. 
So then he started doing Hmm. that. Then Brandon, according to him, would go and cancel those appointments. So he would be seeing an wow yeah he'd be seeing an inmate and think um wow this person i think they need to be seen by a doctor and he'd make an appointment and then she would go and cancel them and say you know it's not necessary wow that is very concerning especially because as nurses we don't diagnose Mm -hmm. (laughs) i mean we don't medically diagnose everyone remembers from nursing school writing out your nursing diagnoses Mm -hmm. I remember that very much but that does strike me as odd especially because it's not well, I guess I can't say, but it doesn't seem like this would be an inconvenience to her. If they're having to go seek care elsewhere, wouldn't that be lessening her load? I, I don't know. I don't really know either. Um, the, and this is, of course, coming from the, the LPN or coming from. Right. So I don't know that she agreed that this happened, but that that was their story. There were also officers who claimed that she was rude to the inmates that she was treating and that she would ignore if they were asking for medical attention. She basically would just ignore them. So she said she said initially that on the morning of his death, he was sitting up in his cell when she checked on him. But prosecutors said Brandon ignored officers nine different times when they tried to tell her about his worsening condition. Wow. And they also said that Dixon's mother actually brought insulin Mm. to the jail for him. Yes. And that, to me, is the most striking. Okay, maybe you weren't aware of the situation when he was first brought in, but if someone brings, a family member brings insulin to the patient while they're in jail, that would, or that should, be a red flag to at least check their blood sugar. If she saw it, yeah. Uh, Right. Well, and that, I mean, again, that is true. Um, And they also said a police officer had gotten insulin from his car Mm -hmm. and brought it back to the jail. And I mean, I would hope as a as a nurse, you would be aware of medications that were under your patient's name. I don't again, I'm not I guess I can't really comment on that because I don't really know how our correction system works. Yeah, without knowing, I guess their procedure for taking in medication like that and where it goes and whether or not she had access to it or would have or should have seen it. You know, we don't really know that. But her defense attorney said that Joel Dixon had not been taking care of himself, that he had neglected to meet doctor appointments. He was treating himself, which I don't understand this, but was treating himself with over the counter medication. And they said that he never asked for insulin the whole time that he was in jail. Hmm. So, But if he was experiencing symptoms of withdrawal, would he even be able to request that? He may be I mean, confused or even, yeah, right. either way, he could have been confused from the... His blood sugar level. Yes. And being critically high. Either one, withdrawing can cause you to have, you know, hallucinations and be confused and not be able to communicate clearly and... Obviously, blood sugar levels can do that as well. So at her first trial, the jury was unable to come to a a unanimous conclusion. So the judge had to declare a mistrial. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So three of the jurors in that trial spoke out publicly about the deliberations. And they talked about how frustrated they were because there was just one juror who refused to convict. They said that 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 one juror (laughs) basically said, well, guards lie. Okay. And Hmm. that one juror, and I don't know if it was a male or female, but said that it had been their experience that they had been, guards had lied about someone that they had known. And they claimed claimed that the three jurors who was speaking out publicly about the trial said that while the defendant was testifying, well, while Carmen Brandon was testifying, I guess, in her defense, she looked right at this one juror the whole time, like made eye contact directly with her. And it, I guess that struck them as odd, you know, like she was right. like honing in as on if her. they maybe knew each other. And I don't know if it's... Or just, or just, just chose that one person to focus maybe on. Maybe that one person was uh, giving her some signal that she was agreeing with her. I don't know. But for whatever yeah. reason, she was making eye contact. So she talked to her the whole time. And, and then that one juror made a comment later on that she had heard. Basically, she was like, oh, OK, I've heard all I need to hear. Hmm. And that was before they were even finished. Wow. And then before they even began to deliberate, the judge, I don't know if you guys have ever done jury duty. I have two times. <laughs> 
And the judge, of course, you have Tina. <laughs> no, and the judge gives you very specific instructions. You know, like he t- he wants you to understand. He wants you to take it very seriously. Obviously, he wants you to understand what it is that your job is, like what it is that you're supposed to be considering. And part of that was when he talked to them was he told them to consider whether or not Brandon's behavior amounted to an inaction, maltreatment, or a negligence. So the jurors, you know, that were speaking out said that the most damning evidence was the video that showed her peeking Mm -hmm. through the cell window for just like a second and then walking off, even though when she looked through that window, he would have been dead at that point and lying on the floor. Wow. That is, that is awful. Yeah. That is, that is just so sickening. I mean, as a medical professional, especially if you can say that that person was sitting up apparently fine mm-hmm. in their cell, when you first checked on them, if they are lying on the ground, that would be an emergency situation. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, you want to make sure they don't have a concussion because they hit their head. Yeah. And that's just heartbreaking to think that he was already dead at the time that she supposedly, you know, peeked in on him. I hate to say checking um, since a glance is hardly that. Yeah. And this was a medical unit, I guess, you know, and he was just basically not being monitored, really. Right. So that one juror. Wow. That, you know, the one that that kind of held out and would would not agree to convict, sent an email because all of these other jurors are, are, you know, speaking out and everybody is just like, how could this one person, it's like the whole town, you know, was. <laughs> Goodness. Yeah. So that juror sent an, an email to the, to the local newspaper and they said that most of the jurors that voted guilty, they did that without even looking at the evidence. And they claim that he or she, whoever, whoever this um, one juror is, read the evidence twice and that there was no way that Brannon, that Carmen Brannon would ever get a fair trial in George County because most people had already made up their minds that she was guilty. Well, and then in an interesting set of events, Carmen Brannon herself sued one of the jurors over a Facebook comment that she had made about the trial before she became a juror. Yeah. So apparently one of the jurors wrote, this is before she became a juror, if she would have done her job, Joel would still be alive today. So yes, she is guilty of murder. He was her responsibility as long as he was in jail and was responsible for her checking his sugar and administering his medication. And because she failed to do her job, he died. Yeah. So, yeah, she said, so H-E double hockey sticks. (laughs) (laughs) We don't say bad words on Good Nurse Bed. (laughs) I was going to do the correct quote. I just... I'm sorry. I was um, scrolling. So I don't know what we have so. to um, bleep out in order to still be considered a clean podcast. <laughs> so bleep. Yeah, she's guilty. Yeah. It doesn't take a genius to see this. And I mean, making um. that statement like that online before you're ever chosen to be a juror. Right. I know that as a jury expert myself... <laughs> <laughs> They do ask you, I mean, they do, they, they say, do you have any prejudices? Do you have anything? Uh, Sometimes they'll say, have you ever had any crime committed against you or someone close to you or family member? Have you, they want to know, is there any reason that we would have to believe that you would not be able, you know, to be completely unbiased in this situation? And right. So I'm sure they ask that. Right. And And that certainly seems like bias to me. It does. Now, she may, in her (laughs) mind, what she may be thinking is, you know, well, yes, I I kind of already have this opinion or I did, but at or I at one time I did. But now if I'm going to be a juror, I can be completely open minded. I'm going to just get rid of that. I don't know if you can honest, you know, if you're really being honest with, with yourself, if you can if you really have the, if you've already made up your mind. And I, right. I want to say that was one of the questions that was asked, you know, have, have you heard of this case? Right. And it, you know, if so, have you already, you know, kind of made up your mind about it? So. Right. And that, and the defense attorney did bring that up. The, her, uh, Brennan's defense attorney said that it was disturbing for someone who was clearly biased. It was a lot that they were allowed to sit in judgment of her. And then Brennan claimed in the lawsuit um, that she herself had suffered loss of sleep, anxiety, and headaches, mm-hmm. 
as well as her professional and personal reputation, which had been dam- or being damaged due to the comments. Yes. Facebook comments. Yes. So I guess she's, I mean, she's suing this woman and she's saying, you know, you made these claims and because of that you ruin my reputation you I can't I can't sleep at night I, I have headaches you know all this anxiety and then plus you know you should have never been sitting in in judgment so I, I don't know I, it's a little I feel like it's a little strange you know that lawsuit but and I don't even know right. how that's ended because I think the last the last mention I could find of it as far as the news or anything was like from December of 2018 and so I think it's one of those things I it's probably a civil suit. They take a long time, you know, years. So it's right. probably going to be a while before that ever gets played out. And it just seems, well, it seems odd to me because Brandon actually was, or she did have to undergo a second trial and she was convicted on misdemeanor manslaughter and sentenced to 15 years in prison. It just seems odd that someone who's going through such a, a serious case themselves would turn around and try to sue someone else at the same time. I, I guess I, I don't know enough about these things to comment on that either, but <laughs> she did appeal the conviction and a special judge let her out of jail with a curfew and a few rules about conduct. Yeah, so I mean, that I was kind of surprised about that. She's convicted and sentenced to 15 years in prison, but then because she appeals, she's allowed out of jail. I don't understand that. I've never heard of that before. Uh, right. I I have not either. You know, in, in the appeal, uh, her attorney claims that she wasn't given a fair trial because they said that the charge against her can't be proven because prosecutors called it misdemeanor manslaughter and they think that that probably confused the jurors and honestly it kind of confuses me I don't really understand what is misdemeanor when I think of the word misdemeanor in my ignorance of you know law (laughs) it sounds like not that big of a deal but then you put the word manslaughter beside it and I'm like those two sound like opposites right exactly no I mean you're right Um, because manslaughter alone, I guess, is um, is a felony. And they claimed that it couldn't be tried as a lesser offense. Right. That's what they're saying. They're saying it's a felony. Why are you calling this a misdemeanor? You're going to give the jurors the impression that this is if you convict her, that you're convicting her of something that's maybe not that big of a deal. And so maybe hmm. they would be more likely to convict if they think maybe she won't get as, as harsh a punishment. Oh, I see. But if they thought she was being accused or charged with murder or something like that. And they're like, well, my goodness, she's going to go to jail for 15 or 20 years, not realizing that with this charge, because it is a felony manslaughter, you know, felony manslaughter, she's going to go away for 15 to 20 years. Right. So that was their argument about that. I mean, I I guess, again, I guess I need to study some more about sentencing, but that does not seem like a long time. Well, for manslaughter. Yeah. Have you ever heard the the Brian Reagan? You know who Brian Reagan is, the comedian? No. Okay. So Brian Reagan is a stand up comedian. You can laugh at my ignorance, everyone. <laughs> they may not know who it is, who he is either. I don't know, but our family loves him. He's very clean. He's a like really clean stand up comedian, which is kind of an uh, anomaly in this day and age. And so when our family discovered him, we like watch everything we can of him. And he talks about the word manslaughter and how manslaughter is somehow less than murder. And yet the word sounds just you know terrible manslaughter, you know, a slaughtered a man. Right. So, uh, but it's somehow, <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. I should not be laughing. Just the way I, I have her on video, video call y'all. So the way she did her, her face expression with that, I just, I, I could not. Oh. But that's what it kind of reminds me of, you know, is that that he was talking about how that word does sound terrible, but it is supposed to be somehow less lesser, you know, than than murder. And I mean, if you think about it, what she did, if everything happened, even the way she says that it happened, like she thought he was just withdrawing from drugs and she it was very busy and she just didn't have time. You know what? Whatever her excuse was for what happened. The fact is that if they, in fact, did tell her and there, and there were that many people that were concerned about him and she was ignoring that and she wasn't monitoring him and she wasn't taking his vital signs, then she was definitely guilty of, of something. You know, she was guilty of, you know, right. neglecting her, her patient. She was guilty of not providing medical care. But I, 
I think that just to play devil's advocate, I don't necessarily think she intended to kill him. I think right. she really thought, sure. you know, he's just withdrawing. You know, she. I'm not excusing her at all, at all. I'm just saying I don't know that it, it warranted first degree murder or something like that. Right. So and the, and at first she actually pleaded no contest, which is sort of like I think it's something like saying, well, I'm not going to say I did. I'm not going to say I didn't. And when you do that, then the judge can sentence you. You're kind of saying, well, I'll take whatever you give me. I'm not going to say I, I didn't do it. And then he can sentence her. And she at first did that. And when she was about to be sentenced, there were 60 people who sent letters in on her behalf. There were elected officials, county employees, friends, fellow nurses, church members where she went to church. And they sent these letters in kind of describing her as hardworking, dedicated, conscientious in her medical care, nothing less than good and wholesome pillars of the, of the community. I think they were describing her whole family that way. One of the hardest working families you would ever meet. The sheriff told about how strenuous the working conditions were at the jail and that it was next to impossible to uh, to perform your duties as a lone nurse with proficiency. And as a nurse who has worked in institutions where I feel like it wasn't safe and it was impossible for me to perform my duties with proficiency, I kind of have you know, some sympathy for her there. Sure. And even a fellow nurse said, the general public has no idea of the decisions and actions we have to make about many patients in their care in a day. And registered nurses are just one accusation or mistake or oversight away from having our career that we were educated for, licensed for, and worked years for taken away. And that is actually, I think, a very real fear, especially the longer you practice, the more you realize. As our listeners know, we're following... A nurse in Tennessee, Redonda Vaught, who is facing that very, I guess, every nurse's worst fear that it does feel that way. A lot of times it does feel that our institutions or even our colleagues are just looking for that one mistake. And then we will be thrown under the bus, per se, and and all of that will be taken away. It is a very real fear that nurses have. Well, and it's kind of, you mentioned Redonda Vaught, this, this case, and I don't think this is they're similar in that they were both charged cr- with criminal actions. But I think that yes. w- if what Carmen Brannon was accused of is true, I think her actions were a little different than Redonda's just because for Redonda, she was doing everything that she thought was right. And she was just kind of, you know, in a hurry. And there were some practices in place that was c- commonplace right. for nurses to do all over the Right. All over the United States, not just at that hospital, but definitely at that hospital. Yes. Like it was just something everybody did. It's overriding a medication. And so in her case, she was just doing something she does every day. And it resulted right. in a patient's death. And then for this, for for Carmen Brannon, she more or less was kind of, I guess, judging this person. And it seems like she wasn't as concerned about him and his condition because he was in her mind maybe a drug addict and you know and and you hear people say things like oh they did it to themselves you know and that sort of thing so not to put words in her mouth it's just it's sort of it seems that way yes it, it really does yeah well I think there's definitely places that we can work that can put us in positions where we can make mistakes or I don't know things can happen and that's That's a reality of nursing. There was a George County supervisor that said she was working under impossible situations almost daily as the jail's lone nurse, and that the vast majority of the jail's inmates are consumed by their drug addictions and pre-existing medical conditions. He also said perhaps it was the 24-hour shifts or the endless parade of inmates going through drug withdrawals that led in part to this tragic loss. So I think what he was saying is, I, I know that we have heard countless times that working more than really working 12 hours, but I know I've heard that working more than 16 hours is just, it's, you're going to make mistakes if you try to work more than 16 hours. So if she was working 24 hour shifts, I'm sure she was exhausted. And then right. if she was just constantly dealing with patients who are going through drug withdrawals, as a nurse who takes care of a lot of these patients, I know how challenging it can be. They can be manipulative. They can be difficult, just very difficult. They can be abusive, verbally and physically abusive. And 
if you're exhausted and you have someone who you know is in this condition because they have chosen at some point to take drugs and they're being abusive to you and they're, you know, physically and uh, verbally abusing you or or attempting to, you put all the the right um, elements together and it can can cause you sometimes to act in ways that's not totally in your nature, I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yes, and, and that is true. It, uh, and and I think it's interesting. So all of these people wrote letters to be read on on Miss mm-hmm. Brennan's behalf, but they never actually entered into evidence because she retracted her yeah. you know, contest plea. Yeah. So you were able to see kind of bits and pieces of those letters. But and it's hard to say, I mean, just from what you were able to research about the the jurors, it sounds like a lot of them may have already made up their mind. I mean, it just seems like there was a lot of talk about the case before it ever went to trial. Well, and it's probably very shocking for this small community where, you know, everybody's talking about uh, this, right. you know, young man that probably a lot of them knew, maybe went to school with, and they are just like this nurse just refused to give him medical treat, uh, treatment and he he died because he couldn't get his insulin you know it just sounds terrible it's it is terrible right one interesting thing that's sort of an aside I guess to this this whole thing is that she does have two grown children a daughter and a son they both were interviewed after all of this sort of played out and they both said agreed that she that her sentence was wasn't enough time basically they felt like wow yes they felt like that is odd her son I think even said something to the effect of that he was surprised something that hadn't happened sooner with the way that she was I don't know what he meant by that but Hmm. her daughter said they they had a pretty good childhood but then when they were teenagers that Brandon and their father went through a divorce and they claimed that their mother told them that she was done raising kids and she was ready to live life for herself. So the kids lived with their father for the remainder of their childhood and they said that they hadn't even seen her or had any contact with her in a decade. So that that was kind of, you know, interesting. Well, that is sad. Goodness, so she may not have had the best Mm-hmm. family life herself and can you but can you judge someone based on that you know even if I guess if you wanted to just look at the situation if you kind of take all of this evidence just at face value you know just from what we can read and what what you can glean from all the different accounts of what happened in the trial and from what all the different um, witnesses said it sort of sounds like maybe at least at work she was a kind of a, you know, maybe rough around the edges, kind of one of those no nonsense kind of nurses who just didn't have a, a lot of compassion for people who were drug addicts because she saw them as you were doing that for themselves. I mean, that's, that's you, I think you could, could glean that from, from all the evidence. I'm not saying that that's definitely, you know, the way it was, but I think you cer- could certainly, right. that's one possibility. But even if that's the case, does w- does her actions warrant her being criminally charged with manslaughter and getting 15 years in prison? I'm not saying it does, and I'm just saying, you know, right. do, do you know any nurses who hmm. are kind of like that, kind of like rough around the edges, sort of like, you don't want to step on their toes or because they're kind of yes I mean of course I would say every 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 institute has at least one <laughs> yeah that nurse or like oh I don't want to give report to him or her right. you know and and I mean I would I would say that I I a lot of times I find them to be probably the most adept and skilled and knowledgeable <laughs> sometimes and maybe she was she had been a nurse for 30 years or something like right. that and uh, honestly, I mean, you know, every time we do one of these episodes, I always feel like after I do the research and I read the story and I and I get to kind of I like to say I get to know the characters a little bit, but the people, <laughs> they're they're real. Mm-hmm. I usually have a good kind of idea of like what I would think whether someone's mm-hmm. guilty or not guilty. But with this one, I feel like uh, there are just so many unknowns about my knowledge of our correctional institutions I don't of how that works I'm not again I just I feel like it's so hard to say I mean he was on a medical unit but how many patients does she have mm-hmm. records etc and I just wonder you know if there was a situation where there was a nurse who was kind of that nurse that everybody knew was sort of like the rough around the edges one and then he or she made an error 
in judgment, and she clearly made an error in judgment, there's no, you can't really deny that, then I guess what I'm trying to say is if all the coworkers are, you know, would kind of like um, gang up on that person, because that's kind of the one that everybody is scared of or doesn't like. Right. Or, so I just don't think that her, maybe her personality helped her out a whole lot in this situation. Right. And that is unfortunate. That really is because yeah. uh, someone's personality does not affect their ability to do their job. Um, it shouldn't. I mean, and, it, and it really shouldn't go into play as to whether they're guilty of something, you know, intentionally. But, you know, the judge did tell the jurors to consider whether or not she neglected, I forget the exact words, neglected, uh, I believe was one of the words. Yes. And I, I don't know, I guess I, if I were a juror with the, with the evidence that I've been able to glean from what I've seen, I probably would have to right. say that she did neglect, you know. i sorry, I looked back and the judge said inaction, maltreatment or negligence. And I, yeah. I would have to agree. I mean, at the very least, when she looked in his window... She should have, I mean, unless her eyes were, were closed or she blinked during that one second, she would have seen him on the ground. You know, he's young, supposedly, to her knowledge, healthy. I mean, that just would be a red, a red flag. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll keep an eye on that story and see how it plays out because she'll, in her appeal, you know, we'll have to go through and at some point they'll, someone, some judge somewhere, I guess, will decide whether or not that goes forward or whether she gets another trial or, or, or whatever. Right. So I guess it's time for our good nurse story. <laughs> Yay. Yay. We finally made it. <laughs> Ooh, that took a while. So this story is really interesting, isn't it? I mean, it is amazing. Yeah. And I just want to, uh, you know, Tina, I feel like we need to try to find Miss Dawn Wilcox. Mm-hmm. And, you know, actually, she's from Plano, Texas, right mm. down the street where I grew up in Richardson. So okay. Howdy. No, <laughs> I'm just adding to the Texan um, <laughs> flair. Well, yes. Anyways. Okay. So this, this story is about Miss Dawn Wilcox. She is a nurse um, who lives in Plano. Of course, we already established that, but she is tracking, and this to me is amazing. She's tracking America's quote, epidemic unquote of murdered women. Mm-hmm. So she started a project called Women Count, which focuses on women killed in the year 2018. And so far, she has documented 1,635 cases that she's been able to find. Mm-hmm. But she adds to her list daily. Right. And she's documenting actually women who were murdered by men because right. of their gender, which is ref- actually referred to as femicide, as opposed to women, I guess, who were mu- murdered for, I guess there could be women who were murdered randomly sure. as a, you know, in a robbery or right. uh, by another woman. <laughs> but this, this is focus- focusing specifically on women who were murdered because of the fact that they are a woman and, you know, it's a power issue or girls, she said, from Alaska all the way to New York. They were all races, all ages, all income statuses. And they were just, they were killed while they simply trying to live their lives. And they were killed by usually men who were closest to them. Hmm. Right. And and this is really true, especially, um, I mean, I think we're all aware of intimate partner violence. Mm-hmm. And, and we know that the federal government does track what it calls domestic violence mm-hmm. killings or, or intimate partner homicides. But no one is actually tracking or compiling maybe data on femicide. And and so I guess Ms. Wilcox just took it upon herself. She will do the research to find these um, women and girls, and this includes young children. Um, and she will also, and to me this is the most amazing part of this project, is that she finds their pictures, she finds their story, and she wants to make sure that they're they're not forgotten. Mm-hmm. She said that she started collecting these stories because she was, I guess, shocked maybe or bothered because of the public. Okay, so I don't know if anyone's ever heard of Cecile the lion and Harambe the gorilla, <laughs> but there are two animals that they were killed 
um, a, a lot of people were outraged by their deaths and um, and they started a, a you know people were starting petitions and marching and Wilcox she was so bothered because I mean she's you know she's a self-proclaimed animal lover but she didn't understand why what there wasn't the same level of concern for murdered women um, and she she um, is quoted saying people are starting petitions and they're marching and I'm like I just heard about three women killed today what about them? Yeah, I think she she kind of just saw saw that like women are killed and it's just an everyday thing. You know what? That's and she felt like that was just outrageous and she wanted to do something to try to honor them and keep their name out there and keep you know so that people um, understand you know remember these people. It humanizes them. They're just not another number. Right. And one example that she gives, Don Wilcox gives, is uh, one of the victims boyfriends shot her and killed her because and he told police he did so because she was upset about what she was wearing yeah it's it's just senseless but there are um a lot several latin american countries actually that have standardized a definition for the term femicide um meaning that in in a lot of latin american countries they recognize this as a as an actual phenomenon that occurs violence against women it, that that's not solicited or you know as you said it wasn't involved in something else it was simply because of their gender um, that the act of violence occurred um, but the U.S. hasn't adopted a standardized definition for the term um, and and that is why Don felt so um, passionate about about documenting these people um, these women and their and their stories um, because she felt like people just even weren't aware that it's a problem. Yeah. And part of the reason that she's so passionate about this is that she actually um, was a victim of domestic violence herself. Um, at one point, she had a boyfriend who held her captive and abused her for hours after she tried to break up with him. And for years, she was married to a man who she says controlled what she wore, who, could sh- who she could vote for and basically left her fearing for her life. She said she tried to leave again and again, so she understands why women stay and why it's it's often more dangerous when you say, when people, when they try to leave and they wish that people would, would ask, why was he violent instead of asking, why did she stay? And that's something that you hear mm-hmm. all the time. Why did she stay? Why did she stay with him? People just, that's the first thing out of most people's mouths. And I think well-intentioned people just really not understanding it. And she's saying, you know, rather than ask that question, asking why was he violent? What is going on that these men are feeling so compelled to control these women to the point that they would basically ruin their their own life. Right. You know, by killing the that woman rather than let have her actually leave them. It's just a matter of control. It right. certainly isn't love, that's for sure. Some of the victims that they talk about um, in this particular article, they themselves were not aware of the violence that was that was about to happen to them. Um, it, she tells a story of, of Caitlin Crocker, who was a 19-year-old girl. She um, was packing up her makeup case. She was a cosmetologist, um, so she was packing up her eyeshadows. Sounds like she was getting ready for work, and the coroner told her mother that she probably started to turn at the sound of a gun being cocked. Um, her boyfriend, Alexander Harmon, cocked a 12-gauge shotgun and shot her with the 12-gauge, um, but she died before she even knew what hit her. Yeah, and that's just, it's so hard to fathom a situation where someone thinks that that is the answer, or, you know, if someone's wanting to leave you, that you um, would would go to those lengths. Right. To st- or or uh, the as the other example that um, she gave, <laughs> you don't like what they're wearing. Mm-hmm. That just, mm, that boggles my mind. Well, it's all about control. It's about wanting to right. control that person. And if that person is exhibiting any kind of decision making that is not in line with with his beliefs or his desires, then that's unacceptable. And in, it must just trigger some sort of emotion or something down deep, you know, that is very, very powerful, obviously, right, that need to control. And and an interesting note is another story um, that she talks about of Jamie Martin. She was killed um, by her ex-boyfriend, 
but 18 months after she ended their long abusive relationship. So, I mean, this is someone who people can't even say, well, why didn't she leave? She did. And she still, uh, unfortunately, her life was still taken by someone that had been close to her at one point. It, um, it actually, the UN, the United Nations report on gender-related killing of women in 2018, um, said that women face the greatest danger in their own homes, and they're much more likely to be killed by those closest to them. And that really is a tragedy, especially, especially in a country um, like the United States, where I think a lot of us would pride ourselves on being open, being aware of current issues, of being inclusive, mm-hmm. wanting to understand others and their point of view, a country where, or society even where um, people's lives do matter. And we take it upon ourselves to, well, especially as healthcare workers, to, mm-hmm. to protect and to, to protect and to help our, our fellow uh, members of society, our patients. <laughs> And it just is such a tragedy that this would be happening at such a high rate. Well, and and um, I I think that sometimes the good nurse story it, it's supposed to be an, an uplifting and um, and it's the good story. But sometimes in telling <laughs> yeah. something good that someone did, it highlights something negative. And this is obviously one of those where what she is doing, what Don Wilcox is doing, is a wonderful thing and a necessary thing. And I'm really proud of her for doing this in her spare time. She she says that she's going to dedicate herself to this uh, full time after she retires. She said that she's, she wants to go back and uh, make sure she has the names of every woman killed in 2018. And eventually she'd like to start working backwards, documenting all women and girls killed by men in the last 50 years to remind the world that they existed and that they mattered. She says some of these women are killed in front of their children. They're killed with their children. These are women being killed while they're pleading for their lives. Even though I couldn't do anything to stop it, this is my way of making sure they're not completely alone, that I'll be there to document it. That is that is awesome. And thank you, Dawn, for, <laughs> for taking action um, in any way that you possibly can just to, to, as you said, Tina, I mean, unfortunately, this highlights something that it isn't a negative or maybe not quite so uplifting topic, but it but it is um, a very relevant and current issue that our society um, faces. And I just think that the most powerful thing about this story is that she's making sure that the stories of these women and girls are being told and that I'm sure just means the world to their families. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a lot more striking than just hearing statistics. But when you see someone's picture, when you hear their story, that really makes it real to you. And it's a, it's a way to honor those victims. Well, I think by her putting them all in one place, it really drives home the, the sheer number of instances you know of of these killings just an absolutely senseless there's just no reason you know for it just it's just a a life gone and destroyed and it's just senseless and it's I think it's great that she's got this um, project that she's working on that she feels like you know she's she's doing something good for these families and for these victims and hopefully her her project will help maybe educate people right Yes. And if y'all are interested in uh, taking a look at that, it is a Facebook page. It's called Women Count USA. I believe anybody can just go on and if you, I mean, you don't have to follow, but you could just take a look if you're interested in that. Thank you, Miss <laughs> Wilcox, for, for taking action. And I'm just, I don't know, it, listening to stories like this, it makes me makes me proud of <laughs> of nurses and our, and our caring, um, our caring for our patients. It, Really, I think it it's a testament to well anyone who works in the healthcare field that mm-hmm. first and foremost we care and and that that translates to many many areas of our lives not just our profession. I agree. I agree. It's just the nature of nurses. I I keep saying it. Nurses are wonderful, and the the longer I do 
this podcast and hear from nurses all over the world um, that are so uplifting, encouraging, just to me personally, but I just appreciate nurses so much. And I love working with them. They're wonderful people. And they're (laughs) definitely special people for sure. They are. Well, I guess that wraps up another episode of Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Yes, it does. (laughs) (laughs) Thankfully, nothing else happened. (laughs) I know. You know, I think my I think my neighbor finally stopped mowing his lawn. Yeah, I heard it a few times. Great, by the way. Great. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, y'all. If you hear that. Shout out to my neighbor for keeping his looking <laughs> good. <laughs> uh, if someone wants to come over and help me mow mine, <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it'll be fine. I, you know, whatever it is, I, d- I doubt it's going to be you know that distracting. But <laughs> well, you guys, I want to remind you to go to our website at goodnursebadnurse.com and kind of check out our new things that we have going on there. Um, you can listen to the podcast there for free, of course, and then you can access some other bonus material by going uh, subscribing to our Patreon account for like, I don't know, like $3 or something. It's not, um, I want to say there's like a dollar one and a $3. I don't know. It's not that big of a deal, but, um, <laughs> and then of course, you, you know, get to, you get to see Tina in her car. <gasps> yeah. You get to see me yeah. in my car. The Car Chronicles. Let's <laughs> try. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, goodness. So, <laughs> you guys have a wonderful week. And I just want you to remember that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a Always. good nurse. Be a good nurse. <laughs> <laughs>